0: Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today we have Sean Desai on the show. Sean is in his third season as a defensive quality control coach for the Chicago Bears. He's entering his 10th year as a coach at the NFL or collegiate levels. On the field, Desai works with the Bears linebackers on defense while also assisting the special teams coaches. Not sure I know what any of that means, but it's great to have you on the show, Sean.
2: (laughs) Oh man, it's great to be here, Scott.
0: Oh, thanks for reaching out to me. I like
2: to expand my horizons. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've listened to a lot of uh, of your podcasts, and then I've read a lot of the books of different people that I've been interviewed, so I was really interested and figured we'd get a chance to talk. I'd love to do that.
0: Cool. Let's start with your like development into the NFL. How did you end up as a defensive quality control for the Chicago Bears? How does one do that?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I started as a uh, graduate assistant at Temple University in uh, 2006, and I was uh, going to school there, and I ended up getting my doctorate in uh, education and higher ed administration, and then uh, became uh, the special teams coordinator and linebacker coach, got promoted to that position. was fortunate enough to do that. Then from there, went to the University of Miami for one year down in Florida, then went to Boston College as a special teams coordinator and running back coach for a year, and then I had an opportunity to join the Bears back in uh, 2012, and uh, was fortunate enough to get the job and have been sticking on ever since. Were you a Chicago Bears fan before? Uh, I, I mean, everybody's a Chicago Bears fan, just in terms of if you're a a NFL fan, you know, because it's one of the founding franchises of the NFL. Yeah. Growing up, I was really, you know, Eagles. I was growing up in the Northeast, so I wasn't an Eagles fan. I was more of a Giants and then San Francisco 49ers, but that was way young. I mean, I would say I stop becoming a fan once you start coaching. Right. So what do you mean by that? That's interesting. You know, I think it's harder to have stronger alliances as fans do when you're in the profession, so you think you appreciate the game from a different angle. And I love the game. I mean, I'm a fan of the game, but to say I'm a diehard fan of one team now, I don't think I can say that, especially if I'm working in (laughs) the league.
0: Gotcha. And did you play football yourself?
2: So I played in high school. Unfortunately, we were good and won a state championship and everything like that. But the college I went to, I went to Boston University. They actually cut their program a few years before I got there. So I did not play in college, which is rather unique, I guess, for anybody to be coaching, especially at this level, but it's worked out.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. Okay. So, I mean, is there like a standard path for someone who wants to become a coach? I mean, is there like something that like, what's like the normal sort of pathway to that, to that sort of?
2: Yeah. So I would say probably a traditional pathway would be, you know, you have some playing experience. So that gives you some access to head coaches, and athletic directors at the college level, or NFL head coaches and general managers, and then eventually you transition into some type of, if it's college, a graduate assistant role, or if it's the NFL, a defensive assistant, or like me, defensive quality control, whatever your title is, you transition into the entry-level position at that level. And then, once you've got access, it's pretty much about your merit and how well the people around you think of you, and you kind of work your way up.
0: Now, let's dive into things that other coaches listening to this interview could really benefit from. So, you've proposed your own sort of model of player development called the DICE model. Do you want to yeah. talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. You know, and it actually came about through some experiences I've had at Temple with the head coach there while I was there. And then I ended up developing it actually for an academic project I was working on at Temple. And it first started off as a teaching and learning model. And then I eventually and since... Over the last, I would say, four or five years, really put a lot more thought into it and developed it really into a leadership motivation model as well. And so, really, DICE is an acronym. And so, what it stands for is direct, instruct, collaborate, and empower. And I think those are pretty much encompass different styles of teaching and learning and really end up encompassing different styles of motivation and leadership. And my premise of the model model is, you know, for me at one point, I should say it like this, at one point it used to be a linear model that, you know, you go from direct to instruct, to collaborate, to empower. And as I've developed the model, I've kind of gone out of that phase and start to think that maybe it's not so linear as much as it is a self-perpetuating cycle. So what I mean by that is there's a, one word that's not in the acronym, trust, that's really critical to the model. So, I think everything starts with trust. Developing trust with your constituents, with your players, you know, in in our field, with your students, if you're an educator. And once you can develop that type of trust, you have access to all of those models. You have access to the directing, the instructing, the collaborating, and the empowering. And I think the empowering is the ultimate one that everybody would like to get to because that kind of creates a self motivated, Individual once they become so empowered, and I think that is really what allows a powerful team to win, powerful organizations to have success. So trust is the central part of it, and I've really added that uh that self uh, perpetuating cycle part because I think once you develop trust, all of those styles, direction, instruction, collaboration, and empowerment are relevant and necessary at different times.
0: Right. From a leadership uh, perspective, what's the difference between directing and instructing?
2: Yeah, that was something I've, I've thought about for a little bit. So directing to me is more of a command. So it'd be something like me say, okay, Scott, you go do this, and then you just go do it. Okay. And instruction would be more of, I think what a lot of people may consider teaching is, okay, Scott, you go do this, and this is how we'll do it. We'll walk to the left. You'll take one step with your left foot, one step with your right foot. So I, I've given you an instruction of how to do that. The collaboration would be like, okay, Scott, we're going to do this. We're going to uh, walk here to the left. We're going to take one step with our left, one step with our right. Let's go ahead and do it together. Here's with your left foot. Here's with our right foot, and we're doing it together. So we're working together. And then an empowerment, eventually, and this is the tricky part, this is the part that gets really hard and it's really elusive to grasp is you know, we may be talking, you might come up to me and say, Hey, hey Sean, why don't I th- I think it might be better if I take a step to the left here? Maybe I can start with my left foot and right foot like this. And then I'd be like, Hey, that's a great idea. Let's let's see how that works. So now you you're the one who's initiated the instruction or the direction or the lesson. So that's where the empowerment comes in. Because once you can get that where the pupil, the player, the learner is feels like they're on an equal level with the teacher, the coach. The leader, then you can. I think it's a powerful movement. It's a powerful motivating force that can really have some drastic impacts positively.
0: So there is a uh, room
2: in the process for some creativity on the part of the player. Oh my gosh! I think that's the uh, really. I mean, I never even thought about that word until you just mentioned. But that's that's really what you're going for when you're talking about empowerment. Is for the player to be able to think creatively, like you said, uh, within whatever realm that they're doing, and to be able to feel comfortable bringing up some ideas or suggestions or feel comfortable doing an action even without speaking to me perhaps because they know that it'll be within the realm of what what we're doing
0: gotcha well so yeah it's this idea of empowerment like during the games are you on the
2: floor of the like are you right there with the players on the sideline yeah so the way you know game day set up is we got coaches on the sideline coaches in the booth and we're all communicating you know with our headsets and everything like that so Myself, I'm up in the booth with our defensive coordinator and one of our uh, other defensive back coaches, and then the other four defensive coaches are on the field. So that's how we communicate.
0: Where's the booth? Is it-
2: the booth is in the stands, really, you know. Yeah. It's like a suite. So it's uh, gotcha. we're, we're kind of higher eagle-eye view of what's going on in the game. Gotcha. It's, a, it's a much calmer environment. So, you know, we can relay the information to the coaches who are on the field, and then they relay it to the players. Because it's hard to see when you're on the field.
0: Yeah, no, I understand.
2: I mean, that that must be quite a rush. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's great. And it's just the dynamic of being in the booth versus on the field. It's totally different. I had an opportunity to be on the field one year when I was at Boston College. There's so much more emotion and energy on the field that if you don't know how to manage it, you can kind of get caught up into it and lose yourself a little bit.
0: Yeah. Do you wish you were on the field?
2: Uh, you know, there are times I do, uh, but I really do like the booth. I really like the ability to be able to see everything, make some decisions, and have some time to reflect on it really quickly and relay information down to the coaches that are on the field. They can pass it to the players.
0: Cool, man. I mean, that yeah, that just like sounds like a dream job for someone that likes football.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: it, it is. It's a
2: dream job for me.
0: <laughs> I mean, you kind of get season, free season tickets. <laughs> That's right. I got the
2: best in the house yeah yeah that's really cool so are you near like the press and media peep booths as well yeah we're actually all on the same level most times you know different things are set up different ways but we're usually on the same level obviously we've got our own partition our own room but yeah everybody's pretty much on the same level
0: are you hoping to uh, win the super bowl this year yes <laughs>
2: yes absolutely
0: I mean, you guys need to make some improvements from last year huh
2: yeah you know i think we're, we've made some and It'll be good. We've got the players back. We're meeting with players now. And it's always an exciting time of year because you get to reinstall your systems and schemes. And right now is the time that you're teaching and learning the most. So it's great.
0: Yeah. So what kind of happens offseason? Yeah. A strategy.
2: So, you know, in the NFL calendar year, it's different than the college calendar year. Uh, you know, once the season's over, the coaches get a few weeks off and then you get ready. You're trying to get ready for a free agency. So you're evaluating players in the NFL around your team and on other teams. And then personnel folks are making transactions. And then you get ready for the draft, which is another big chunk of time. You, know, you go down to the combine and you're conducting interviews, you're evaluating college players. And then after the draft, you're pretty much getting ready for spring practice, OTAs, coaching sessions, which is what we're in right now. And so during that time of, well, you're evaluating players through free agency in college, you're basically self-scouting, self-analyzing your own strengths and weaknesses, trying to figure out ways that you can improve studying other people's schemes, both offensively and defensively, and just trying to get better as best you can. So what do you think is some of the greatest indicators of
0: potential in the NFL? There's been some research on NBA combined showing that a lot of those markers of physical fitness and stuff are really not what differentiates the greats from the
2: non-greats. What do you think are some of the greatest markers? You know, I think that's an awesome question. I think there needs to be a baseline, and I think in, in most of the literature, even non athletic literature, when you're talking about performance, there needs to be some type of baseline of skill, some type of baseline of athleticism, so however you measure that, so we, you know we, we have that, and just like the NBA, everybody's got those analytics in terms of height, weight, speed, yada, yada, yada of all those things that, that you can measure and you can quantify. I personally believe that that's. It's good and it's a good understanding to have, and it's a good barometer to measure people and compare people historically and currently. But I think there's another level that needs to be understood, and that level is really developed through personal contact. You need to be a person evaluator to be a good personnel evaluator, in my opinion. And so, what I mean by that is you need to be able to understand how a person learns, how they're motivated makes them kind of tick and what makes them want to be great if they have that quality that wants to be great and really how they'll fit into your system. I think a lot of times talent can be kind of a seduction almost. You know, people can get seduced by talent that they forget all those other things and then all of a sudden you may have a talented player who is not really performing well
0: or or to to your your expectations. As Angelo
2: Duckworth puts it, yeah, distracted by talent. That's a, yeah, that's right.
0: Have you read her new book? Just came, out.
2: I just got it. I have not read it though.
0: Cool, man. It's very good. It's a great book. Yeah, so this is super interesting. You have this privileged access to seeing uh differences in, in player quality and getting to
2: understand the people as well. Are you friends with any of the players? You know, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say friends. You know, it's not like I'll call them up and right, yeah, and go drinking with them. I mean, I think we have a good professional relationship. I think they all respect me, and I certainly respect uh everything that they do in terms of their preparation and their physical and mental wear that they put on their bodies to go through the sport that we play. So I certainly have a great respect for them, but yeah, I think I'm, I would say have a really good, respectful, professional relationship with them where I hope they feel like they can come to me for anything. And I know I can go to them for anything. Are you allowed to be friends with them?
0: Are there, you know,
2: no, no. Yeah. There's no written rules. And I think there's always a necessary boundary at points. You know, you don't want to become too friendly because at the end of the day, this is still a profession, you know, especially when you're talking about the NFL. It's very different than college, you know, because a lot of times these players are coming and going in the NFL, you know, they get cut one day, they get picked up by another team and things like that. So in college, you're developing a little bit different type of relationship because these are kids who are, you know, 17 or 18 years old coming right out of high school who are an opportunity to live on their own for the first time. So in that right. role, you're trying to take on a little bit more of a parental role, trying to show them the way of how to be a college student, how to be a successful student athlete, You know, what are the traits that they need to be able to endure the academic rigor of the university that they're at, as long, along with the football rigor or the athletic rigor.
0: So that's a great point. So how much of performance or you know high performance is due to the sort of mental game? There's a phrase called
2: mental toughness that's used a lot in sports.
0: What are some of the key characteristics there?
2: You know, I think mental toughness is, to me, an overused phrase that's underdefined. Now, do I think it's a great phrase? Yes. Do I use it all the time? Yes. But I think it needs to be clearly defined in terms of how people are using it because a lot of times it just becomes a catch-all for something. Oh, well, that kid's not mentally tough. Well, what does that mean? What are your expectations as a leader for being mentally tough? And so for me, you know, some of those expectations are, are they resilient? Are they able to self-motivate themselves through a difficult physical situation and also a difficult mental situation? You know, because these are all things that happen to them in the course of a game. So how do they respond to adversity? And so, you know, you try to put them in situations where you can determine that, you know, through practice or even through meetings. You try to make those as difficult. For them to endure, not difficult in a, oh, man, this is laborious or anything like that, but difficult in the sense of this is mentally draining if you're in a meeting room or even sometimes physically draining if you're on a practice field. So you're trying to push them to certain limits, safe limits, obviously. You don't want to do things very safely, but you're trying to push them to certain limits and test certain boundaries to see how they'll react, to see if that's the type of player that you can use and count on to, you know, for a successful outcome in a game.
0: Oh, that's a really good point. I mean, most people at that level, though, I mean, they're like very high. I mean, they're going to have very good resiliency
2: to be able to make it to the NFL, right? Yeah, you know, so I think there's – anytime you get access to any type of profession, and this was a lot of what my research was in my dissertation, there's already a baseline characteristic. So it's just what you're saying, you know. It's like the signaling hypothesis, the screening hypothesis. All these guys interviewed for a job in the NFL through their four years of college. Uh, through their work on the field, off the field. They went to the combine or didn't. You know, They had their pro days. So that was their interview process. Right. And so that ended up being a signal or a screen for these NFL teams. So now we know, okay, they were able to do certain things, but it's a whole different set now because there's also another, just like any labor market trend, there's still a supply and a demand need. So regardless, there's going to be some people that fall through the cracks because you just need supply.
0: Right. Do you you have any say in who who gets into the NFL? Do you you have
2: have like a vote? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I'd like to think so. You know, uh, our organization does a great job with our general manager and our head coach in terms of involving the coaches and the personnel in terms of evaluations. So, yes, you know, like I work with the linebacker group, the inside linebackers in particular with us. So, you know, I have a list of guys that I evaluate. Our inside linebacker coach has a list of guys he evaluates, and then we all kind of sit in a meeting room and discuss it and hash out the differences and kind of you know, uh give everybody our evaluations on if we think this guy's worthy to be a bear or not.
0: I like the way you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Worthy to be a bear. That's cool. Um I mean it's just such a it seems like such a dream job. Wow. Yeah so uh, you know, I, I really appreciate your advice and, and uh, insight. You know there are a lot of people who are into the coaching profession who want to get to coaching profession. Do you have any advice for them? Like I have, I have a student, an undergrad student in one of my classes that wants to be a coach.
2: Like, what's the advice there? Well, the advice is, keep working hard and just try to gain access. Try to gain access point into college coaching or into the NFL or wherever level you want to coach into high school coaching. I mean, when I was in college at Boston University, I was coaching my high school team back in Connecticut, helping coach it. You know, so I'd be in contact with the head coach. It was a freshman team, and I'd stay through training camp. I'd drive back on weekends to coach for games. So you're going to have to put in some type of sacrifice. And you're going to, I mean, it's just like what Angela Duckworth has. You're going to have to have some grit because you're going to go through a long road, a low paying road, where you're going to be at the bottom of the chain for a long time. Right, right. And you're going to have to be able to endure that and realize that it's not about, the money or the materialistic things that you may think it is, but it's really about your passion and your drive and your positive approach towards it that'll help you develop and advance and be a sponge. I mean, go meet different coaches. You know, they have all these coaching clinics and all that kind of stuff. Go to a lot of them, meet different people, uh, learn a lot of different schemes, learn a lot of different types of way to do things, have an open mind and just keep, keep working.
0: Yeah. Do you um? Do you have a specific like? Do you want to be a head coach? Yes. Like, do you have a dream? Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah. So, uh, yes, to be a head coach. Uh, and really, you know what? I got into this profession because, like I said, I got my doctorate, so I had a professor job in hand. Uh, that I turned down to be a GA. You know, so I was I went from getting paid whatever it was going to be to still paying and not getting any money. So the dream was to be a head coach at a college or the NFL, and then eventually, you know, obviously win at that high, be successful and win at that level, whatever yeah. level that is. And then, you know, I think eventually I would like to get back into academics and kind of pursue that leadership track a little bit if I can.
0: Yeah. Are you are you friends with John Fox at all?
2: Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. How no, much he, interaction
0: he's, do you have with him?
2: Yeah. Oh, daily. Yeah, daily. I mean, you know, because the coaches are really close, you know, he does it. Coach Fox does a great job in terms of uh, listening and empowering everybody in the organization to have a voice uh, and, you know, to have their own kind of uh, stance on things, you know, so it's really, I'm really fortunate to be part of his organization. He's extremely successful, as you can see by his own history. So uh, he takes such a positive approach to developing players every day that it's it's really awesome i'm really fortunate to be where i'm at
0: yeah no it, it really sounds like such a great job and um yeah i wish you all the best in, in working your way up and uh, we'll get you back on the podcast uh someday when you're head coach <laughs> that sounds uh, good scott thanks for being on the show oh thank you thanks for listening to the psychology podcast with dr scott barry kaufman i hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as i did If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com.